this morning as we, we think about Memorial Day, I think about choices. And if you think about choices, the choices that those men and women made had profound impact on our nation and on us today. And choices have a way of doing that, right? Can you think of some choices that have, have affected the rest of your life or that will affect the rest of your life? What are some of those choices? Marriage. Who you marriage? That might affect the rest of your life. Whether or not to have kids. Yeah. They stick with you after you have it. It's really weird. Uh, what? Following Christ. That affects not just the rest of this life, but the rest of eternity. Yeah. Anyone remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books? Um, I, some of you, they, they were books that when I was younger, a few years back, you, you'd be reading the book and it would come to a point and it would give you a decision in the book. And how many of you have seen these books? A few. Okay, good. So I, I'm not just talking to dead air. And, and you make a decision and it tells you what page to turn to and the story changes depending on what you choose, right? And, and, and so you could reread this book five, ten times. And, and of course I would do that because I want to follow every path. And if you always follow the first one, and the, so there's a logical way to do it. But, but I, I was looking online, and th- there's some examples of them. One I ran across this week was, um, you accidentally wake up a sleeping grizzly on a hike. What do you do? And it gave you four choices, and so I'm interested in them. One was run away. Two was stand still. Three was attack. And four was jump in the river. And the question was, how do you survive? And, and so then you, you click on one of those. Which one would you guys choose? Run away, stand still, attack, or jump in the river? Stand still. Some of you chose... Okay, most of you said stand still. And um, if you clicked stand still, it said the bear likes you. You've made a friend. You pet the bear and you survive. And I'm thinking, this is totally wrong. That's not what happens. And then it got a little weird because it said your friend comes along and attacks and the bear eats it and you run away while, while your friend gets eaten. I'm like, well, okay, that's not helpful. I chose jump in the river and whoever wrote this one just wasn't real helpful because they said you survived the bear attack. He waves to you as you go off a waterfall. <laughs> Thank you? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, you know, attack you had predictable results. Don't attack a grizzly. Just, just, that was probably the most realistic. But the choice affected the story. It affected where the story went. Today, as we come to the end of Isaiah, Isaiah sort of uses this idea of choices and choosing, not your own adventure, but choosing your own destiny. And he's going to say, I, I've, I've given you all this information. We've gone through 64 chapters of Isaiah to this point. And we followed messages to the the children of Israel before the exile. And the message was, repent or you're going to be taken away. And it was choices, wasn't it? And then the next section was all about the people that would be toward the end of the exile in Babylon and written forward to them saying, don't give up. God is still your comfort. He He will still rescue you if you follow Him. Stay away from idols. That's going to lead you down a path you don't want to go. And follow God. And again, it was about choices. And then in this last section, as he talks to probably thinking forward to a people that have returned from the exile and how do they live in light of the kingdom, he begins to paint a picture of what the new heavens and the new earth would be like. But again, we have this combination of God's mercy and his grace and this wonderful future for those that follow him and his judgment and the the grapes of wrath that Pastor Andrew talked about last week 
for those that defy him. And so as we wind up the whole story and as we we finish the, the lessons of Isaiah, it is no surprise that he comes back to choices. And then he, he, his summary is coming back to the same theme. God is giving you some choices. What are you going to do? They will end in two completely different destinies. Now, as he brings up things again, as, as we've talked about several times, he tends to add something in. And today, some of the new things that we're going to see is just how intently and passionately God pleads with people to come to him. This is not an idle request. And it's not just this impassion or this, this passion less. Ah, oh, I don't care what you do, but if you come to me, great. You get to be in heaven with me. If not, oh well, I judge you and kill you. And No, it, it's not that kind of thing, but we see God's passionate pleading for his people. And then in, in this chapter in Isaiah 65, we have the, a clearer picture yet of the new heavens and new earth and what awaits those that follow him. Turn with me to Isaiah 65. And let's see the choices that Isaiah wants to share with us, that the Holy Spirit through Isaiah, what those choices are and what destinies they lead to. Isaiah chapter 65. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one right under the seat somewhere around you. We'd love for you to pull that out and follow along. If you don't have a a Bible at home that that is helpful for you to read, take that one as our gift to you because we want you to have God's Word. Isaiah chapter 65. And the sequence that we're going to see is the same sequence. We're going to look at the call of God, the people's responses, and the destinies that those lead to. And so there's your points right there for those of you that want to sleep the rest of the time. And we'll we'll go from there. Last week, Pastor Andrew was sharing Isaiah 63, Isaiah 64 with us. And it had to do with God's judgment on a rebellious people. And then the second half of that was a prayer of lament to God why, God, have you forgotten us? Are you ignoring us? Are you silent? What's going to, what are you doing here? And the answer comes in Isaiah 65. And so think of all this as an answer to a people that are accusing God really of deserting them, that are accusing God of being silent. And so especially in these first seven verses, God answers that. The first thing that we see in verses 1 and 2, the first half of verse 2, is the call. God wants all to be saved and intently invites any to come. The call. God wants all to be saved and intently invites any to come. Now, I am fully aware that as we come to today's passage, we come with a whole theological background and theological frameworks that we want this passage to fit into. I urge you just to read the passage today and see what God's Word says is true. And here we see that God is calling all to be saved. Whatever you want to do with that in your theological framework, the Bible says he's calling all to be saved. Read verse 1. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. Beginning of verse 2, I spread out my hands all the day to, the, to a rebellious people. We'll stop there. We'll pick up the, the rest of verse 2 in the next point. But what we see here is God's passionate intent call inviting people to come to Him. This is a direct answer to where were you? Because He said, where was I? I I've, I've been ready to be found. I've been ready to be sought. I've been here. Here I am. Here I am. 
And if you didn't find me, it's because you're the one that wasn't looking. It's because you're the one that had walked away. Breaking down verse 1 and 2 there, verse 1 really looks like he's talking to um, Gentiles. He's talking to the nations, to a nation that was not called by my name. The, the language there is broader. And so he's, what we see here is God taking the initiative to, to call and invite a world to salvation. It's not that the people are coming to Him because we in our sins are unable to come to Him on our own. But God is saying, I've made it possible for you to seek Me. I've been ready to be sought out by those who did not ask for Me, by, by those before they're saved, while they're still in their sins, while they're still rebellious. I'm saying, here I am. Answer Me. I love you. I have salvation for you. Will you answer He goes on in verse 1, I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. And again, it's it's, it's Romans 5.8 that God shows His love for us while we were still sinners. It's this, that even while we're in rebellion, when we're not seeking, when we're not asking, God was already making the way. He was already making it possible. He already accomplished the work of salvation for us through Jesus Christ on the cross. For them, they would be looking forward to that. His plan is for all nations to know Him. In your, in your free time, you can look up Romans 10, 20, and 21 because Paul quotes these two verses. And he quotes them as to the Gentiles and to Israel. Because you might read this and like, okay, how do you know that's the Gentiles and Israel? Paul tells us that, which is a really easy way to know. But this is to the nations here, verse 1. Verse 2 is to Israel. I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people. And that's a term that he used of Israel and their rebellion. And, and for the next six verses, he's going to outline that rebellion. You did this, you did this, you did this. And we know that that's Israel. And so here he's saying, I've invited all the nations to me. I've spread out my hands for Israel to come to me. And what he's doing is he's including here everyone. If I stand here and say, you know what, I want all the guys to come over for lunch today and I'd like all the girls to come over for lunch today. That pretty much covers it. And and so what I'm doing is I'm using two different groups to show an inclusion of of everybody. And, And so that's what he's doing here. Just in case they think the Gentiles aren't welcome, just in case the Jews aren't welcome, he's using both groups to show that everybody is included. He can be sought. He can be found. And then at the end of one there, you see the words, here I am, here I am. He is actively calling people to himself. Actively saying that he is here. You know, the picture I think of, and it's not quite right because I, I, I hesitate to paint God like this, but the wording here is sort of like the, the short guy that's being picked for basketball. And he's the last one. He's going, pick me, pick me, pick me. And, and you know how it goes. That's not quite, so God's not the short guy that's, that's bad at basketball. But it's that urgency, that idea of, I'm here. Here I am. Now, do you see how this answers the question, where are you, God? Are you silent? Have you forgotten me? He's like, oh, I, I'm still here. I've been in the same place all along. I'm waiting for you to come back to me. In verse 2 here, the, the word that spread out my hands, that's a, a phrase that's often used of pleading or prayer. 
It's God beseeching His people. We saw it in Isaiah 1 that God is beseeching His people, come to Me. You see, every word here is rich. It says, I spread out My hands all the day to a rebellious people. And that's a reminder that God is continually looking for us to come to Him. He's continually calling us. He doesn't take a nap in the afternoon in which we can't find God. But it's all the day. All the time. There is no excuse. Back in Isaiah 64, the chapter before, the people asked, There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of your iniquities. And God is saying, Actually, no. I have not hidden my face from you. I have been here because of your iniquities, because of your rebellion in verse 2 there. There has been distance but not because I hid. That is so comforting for us. That is so comforting to know that no matter where you sit this morning, no matter what has happened this week, no matter whether I've blown it in in great ways or small ways, that God is always standing there saying, here I am. Here I am. And in a moment, in a moment of true repentance, we can come to Him and say, God, I, I am sorry You are right. I am wrong. You are righteous. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. And that relationship is restored. That's what I see out of this is God is ever present waiting to be in relationship with us. If there's a problem with my relationship with God, it's not Him. It's me. And so where are you? Are you distant? No, I've been here all along reaching out. And, and we can just think through the Bible. We can think through how God spoke through Abraham and the patriarchs, through Moses, through Samuel, through the prophets, through Isaiah, through Jer- Jeremiah. The Old Testament is a story of God reaching out to people and saying, come to me. The, the prophets, the major and the minor prophets, we look at that as judgment. No, that's God saying, Come on, come out of your sin. I want relationship with you. And so when people say the God of the Old Testament is a harsh, horrid God with no grace or love, oh, they are dead wrong. Because the story is a story of God bringing people to Himself. See, Israel's problem here wasn't that God was distant. It was that their sin kept them from God. Point number two as we go on. So that, that's the call. And, and that's really some of the new things here, that just how passionate God is about calling us, how, how deeply He wants people to come to Him. But then the passage goes on at the second half of 2 to verse 10 to talk about the responses. Everyone chooses to either follow their own self-centered purposes and conclusions or to seek God in His ways. I think as I wrote this point out, it it, it was much longer. Own self-centered purposes, own brilliant plans. I, I could go on and on and on about how great we are and how right we think we are. And and, and I know, and, and some of you, some of you like to be right. Most of you like to be right, and we think we're right. And I have one child that's more than that than the other, and and it, it's sometimes a conflict because I know I'm right. So one of us has to give. We are so that way with God, aren't we? 
because of the sinful nature, because we've given into self. And so here he comes to the, the first response. The first response is that those who follow their own purposes will be repaid. And it's all about the self-centered purposes, these conclusions. And, and, and really understand this, these are the only two choices. Either you're for God or against Him. Either you're sold out to follow God or you're following self and everything you can think up. There are no other options. And that's important to understand as we come to this choose-your-own-adventure. In verse 2, we go on to, or it says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people, to a people who have chosen to be obstinate, to pursue their own way instead of mine, God is saying, who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. And talk about a verse that describes them and us at the same time, who walk in their own ways, who follow their own devices, And the the word for devices there is the idea of plans or imaginations or purposes. And what what he's painting here is that Israel, and and then as, as we look at us, we choose to walk away from God. We choose to not follow Him because we think our way is better. Because I've thought it through and God probably didn't have time to. And I know what I need to do and I know what's right. Where I look at that and say, that's going to give me more enjoyment than the limitations God's put on me. Or I rationalize in my head why something is right. And all of this is following my own devices. And just in case we're, we're not sure where it's going to lead, he adds in there, who walk in a way that is not good. Man, this is such an important verse to start out the choices. Because it's painting what the choice to not follow God looks like. We, we can, our culture right now is trying to paint that following God is weird and strange and not believing in anything that would, re, re, that would pertain to religion or anything else is somehow the desired outcome. And somehow it's neutral. And have you heard that? You have, you have you know, the religious people that are freaks and then you have neutral or normal. But in reality, it's, it's not good. It's always self-centered. It's always following my own way. It's individualistic. It's self-pleasing. And, and, and out of this, when you think of a world where now I can please myself and follow whatever I think is right, that means whatever I rationalize is right for me. Now what happens if what you rationalize is right for you and it's different and in conflict to what I rationalize? And so we get here the relativism of individual preference Everything's relative. There's no absolute standard. And when those collide, then we have issues. You know, if, if, if it's right for me to take John's trailer and he thinks it's right for him to protect his trailer, we have a clash. I'm right. I, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. And so this, the, the, the whole idea of self-understanding and, and plans that are my own devices are, are logically impossible to reconcile. Hey, anyone can think about that and you should be able to come to the conclusion, well, that doesn't work. There has to be some objective standard. And what we're seeing is, is culture and society is pushing this and they're coming up with new and crazy things every day of what's wrong and what's not normal and and. The, the, own, the devices of man are crazy. I was reading stories this week about Portland and they're starting to put restaurants out of business. Have you heard this? 
They're starting to put restaurants out of business where the owners are cooking food that isn't part of their national heritage. It's crazy. They're calling it cultural appropriation. And, and, and I'm reading this and I'm like, I don't even know how we got here. I don't even know how we got here. And then I start to listen to people defending this and they believe it. And it's because the ways of man and our own devices take us down a path that eventually is craziness. And God knows this and it's why He's beseeching us and begging us to come to Him. He's like, that goes to a cliff. Don't go there. Today in Sunday school, we're going to talk about purity and talk about an issue where culture completely redefined where we were even 50 years ago. And culture has said, if you have two consenting adults, anything is okay. That is, is relativism of individual preference. And we're seeing where that's going as a society. How do we stand against that? And I encourage you to stay for the second hour. Say, how can we stand for purity? In a world where sexual morals have changed, where morals of purity have changed. By the way, this path is not good. Verse 2. And so he goes on and starts to explain this a little bit. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on, on bricks. And the first part of three, I think, is best to think of as a summary for what's to come. And he's saying this rebellion, it provokes me to my face all the time. It's spitting in my face. It's slapping me in my face because you are following your ways and not my ways. You are going against the good and beautiful plans of the Creator. And sin is always taking God's right and good plans to make us thrive and twisting them. It's like putting diesel in a gas engine because it's cheaper. Go ahead, try that on your way home. No, don't, don't, don't. (laughs) Pastor Ron said it would work. No, it won't work. The manual says not to do it. God has created us. He's designed and we provoke Him in the face continually by doing things our way. And what's interesting is we keep ourselves from the thriving that God wants for us because we try to make our own plans. And so these are examples that we don't necessarily understand in our culture. We'll try to explain them. The first is sacrificing in gardens. And, and think, where were they supposed to be sacrificing to God? Where were they supposed to be worshiping? The temple, right? And so right here, they're already in the wrong spot. But there's more to this because you sac- the gardens represented sacrifices to gods of fertility. To, to gods. And, and so it's a way of, of in, improving your life. We'll sacrifice to the fertility gods to get what we want. Even if it's not what God said, hey, why not? And it's false worship. And it violates you will have no other gods before me. And he goes on to say making offerings on bricks. And he's not talking about barbecue here. He's, he's talking about an impropriety in worship. He's talking about not in the right place. Um, on bricks would be sometimes to Moloch or some of the other gods. And God had a command, my altar will be rough stones. You are not to build an offer, altar out of any hewn stones. And so whenever you see an altar where the stones are cut so nice and fitted together, that was sinful. That was rebellion. 
And so for them, that would have been, oh, wait, that's violating Exodus 20.25. And who knows why they were doing it. Maybe it's easier. Maybe oh, it looks nicer and God wasn't quite right. And this is so much of a, a better way to do it. But it's disobedient. And so many times our disobedience comes under the guise of, of convenience. When obedience would have been easier, but we had a better way. Verse 4, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. And again, we probably don't go out and do this every night. But for them, that was a way of, of consulting the spirits for direction, consulting the dead, the underworld. You would go and, and make these incantations. And so it's getting input and getting advice from something other than the Almighty God who created everything and knows all things. Do you see the problem? who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat in their vessels. Now some of you are saying, I like bacon. This is bad. But for them, they had clear instructions on dietary laws and you were to avoid po- pork and avoid pigs. But hey, it's here. I want to eat it. And so it's a picture of people doing whatever they want, of religious deterioration as they followed their own devices in verse 2. There's not a better way of saying that instead of God's way. And we do this. Don't think that this was just them. In verse 5, now this starts to get a little more personal. Those who say, keep to yourself, don't come near me. I am too holy for you. And this pride and this false sense of religiosity while they are choosing their own devices. And we do this. We justify and we do these things and somehow we feel holier and better than those around us. And just in case we're not sure what God thinks of that, the second half of five, these are a smoke in my nostrils and a fire that burns all day. Those are not good statements. Because God hates pride. And so many times, and I think of this as a package, he's talking about these changes in religious rituals and they would have all these rituals to get what they want. And and ritualism and legalism often leads to pride. If you're just here because, hey, it's 9.30 Sunday morning or 9.20 or if you're village time, 10 o'clock Sunday morning and I should be there. If that's the only reason you're come and you want to look spiritual because, hey, you came to church on Sunday, don't come. That's not God's heart. That's not what He wants. Be here to worship God, to study His Word, to draw near to the Creator of the universe. This is choice one still. Six and seven goes on to to say a little bit of, of a hint to some of the results. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed, indeed repay into your lap or into their lap. And God says, I, I won't be silent. It answers the question at the end of 64. Will you restrain yourselves at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? No, I won't because you're rebelling against me and you're going to feel the result of that rebellion. You have chosen and you have chosen poorly. For those Indiana Jones fans. Verse 7, both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, say the Lord, 
because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. Offerings on the mountains would have been the high places and offerings to other gods. Idolatry. I will measure into their lap payment of their former deeds. And get what he's saying here. He is answering the question, are you a just God? Are you silent? By saying, I'm just going to give you what you've earned. That's all it is. This is choice A. This is attacking the bear. And it makes no sense. But then in verses 8 through 10, we get choice B. Those that seek God will be prized. Those that seek God will be prized. Thus says Yahweh, as the new wine is found in the cluster and they say, don't don't destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for my flocks and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. And I would underline that last phrase of 10 because that is the key to the second choice. For my people who have sought me. And so let her be there. Those that seek God will be prized. They will be blessed. And in ver- we have, we have a, just a number of different imagery here in verse 8. It's the imagery that, that we saw last week. And last week it was the grapes of wrath, right? That God will trod the winepress and those that, that don't follow Him will be judged. But he's using that same image in something that those that grew grapes knew. On the grapes, sometimes there was a gleaning after the harvest, but sometimes they would come and find a cluster that's just dripping with juice. And that was the prized cluster. Because that was the best tasting juice or wine eventually out of that. And so they would, they would save that and they would treat that differently. And so God is using that image to say in the middle of the, the, my wrath that's coming, the wine press that's, where grapes are trodden, in the middle of that, I'm going to find some choice, some choice clusters that I delight in because they have sought me. And so he saves some from the wrath. Think back to also chapter 5 of Isaiah. He described the nation to a, a vineyard. And he said, it's an unkempt vineyard. You're not taking care of it. And so he keeps using this imagery. But here are the remnant that follows God. And he talks about the renewal and the transformation that's going to happen because God is redeeming all of creation to himself. And some will, be, will go to judgment, but those that follow him will be transformed and renewed. You have Sharon. Um, she'll become a pasture for the flocks. And that's the, the stretch of land between the Mediterranean and the hills, a fertile land. And so that they would have said, well, yeah, of course, that's good for flocks. But then the Valley of Achor is on the other side of the mountains. This is, if you remember the story of Achan in Joshua and Ai and this desolate area, it's a valley where nothing grows. And it says Valley of Achor, a place for herds to lie down. And it's talking about restoration, that even this most desolate place this place that in your history is a cursed place, I will make herds lie down for my people who have sought me. And that's the key to this, this verse. What does it mean to seek God? That's the question we should ask. See, to seek means to search out, to actively look for something, to actively pursue something. 
One of the definitions is, is to frequent a place often. I'm like, what does that have to do with it? But it's speaking of the persistence. That if we're seeking God, we're frequently seeking Him in the places where we can seek Him. In His Word. In His church. Deuteronomy 4.29 talks about seeking God. It says, but from there you will seek Yahweh your God and you will find Him if you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul. And so when we're instructed to seek after God, it's are we searching after God with all of our heart and soul, with every day of the week, with every ounce of my strength? It's to seek His ways, to seek to please Him, to seek His presence. One author wrote, Those who seek God are those who know that they cannot make it on their own. They recognize that their only source of guidance assistance, and salvation must be God. So how do we do this? And, and, and I was trying to think, just how do we practically talk about seeking God? And um, an illustration came to mind, and, and don't judge my parenting skills. We allowed our kids to get fidget spinners. <laughs> Actually, I inadvertently... Um, promised them fidget spinners if they could all get along for a length of time that I thought was impossible. <laughs> it wasn't impossible, which is a whole different lesson that we're, we're getting lots of mileage out of. Um, but their goal, when they wanted a fidget spinner, what do you think happened? It became a consuming goal. Mark, one of my kids in the middle of the night, <laughs> he's the most tech savvy He comes to me with this list from Amazon. Dad, look at these prices. $2 each. And and they, they know the stores where to get them. And they're planning out routes and planning out their schedule. My schedule. How are we going to get these? Last Saturday, we went to a swap meet for one reason. And, and, and we found some, but then, then we heard, we've got to come here every weekend. This is amazing. We've never taken them to a swap meet before for good reason. But do you see what, do you see the intensity of the seeking? It's a seeking that consumes everything for them. We're trying to teach them that's not healthy, that this is just stuff. And, and so there's a whole lot of teachable moments in this. But what if we had the same passion to seek after God as my kids do for fidget spinners? What if that passion reflected that if I have a chance to be in God's Word, let's read God's Word because this is where God reveals His way to me and and allows me to find Him. That there should be a joy of coming together with the people of God because this is God's church and this is where we worship together and challenge each other and provoke each other to love and good deeds. It means that whenever I come to the Word or come to teaching, I come humbly looking for what I can learn not what I can criticize. It means when I come to worship and that worship of any style is an expression of responding to God, an expression of submitting to Him, and I should love it. And I think of times in my life where I struggle with worship and I struggle with with really singing the words and it's almost always corresponding with my, my times of not seeking God as much. Because when I'm seeking God, Worship is an outgrowth. We're going to see that in this text. We've seen that all through Isaiah. Worship is tied to being close to God. And so we we have these two points already. 
We have God's call. His, his reaching out to people. And then we have two responses. And this answers, where were you? This answers, were you silent? I love a story. There's a preacher and a barber that are walking through the city slums. And the barber says, if God was as kind as you say, he wouldn't permit all this poverty, disease, and squalor. He wouldn't allow these poor people to get addicted. I can't believe in a God who permits these things. The pastor was silent until they met a man whose hair was hanging down. His neck had a half inch of stubble on his face. And the pastor looked over at the barber and says, you can't be a good barber. Or you wouldn't permit a man like this to continue living here without a haircut and a shave. Indignant, the barber answered, why blame me for the man's condition? He has never come to my shop. If he had, I would have fixed him up and made him look like a gentleman. Then don't blame God for allowing people to continue in their evil ways, the preacher said. He invites them to come and be saved. It's, it's this passage. Here I am. Here I am. Come to me. And then one group says, no, my way is better. And another group does. And their destinies are very different because of that. Now, I know some are, are sitting listening to this. And you're like, I've been a Christian a long time, Pastor Ron. This is, all, this is all old hat. And so sometimes we look at this, and, and A, it should give us a new appreciation every time we hear salvation story of what God has done for us. Because you still don't deserve salvation. I still don't deserve salvation. But, but the other thing it does for me is it gives me ideas of how to present the gospel to people. How to present God's longing for people. How to help them understand the choices. And some of you here may have never accepted Christ. And I hope today is just a clear call to say there's two choices. And two ends to those choices. Which will you choose? And so we come to verses 11 through 16. And we get to the next step in the story. The contrasting destinies. These two choices have eternal results. And in your notes there, I have the left side, those that seek after God, that pursue Him. The right side, those that pursue their own ways. And and in these these six verses, there's just a a jumping back and forth between the two. And so I just want to read them and, and hear the results of some of these choices. But you who forsake the Lord, or Yahweh, who forget my holy mountain, Zion, Jerusalem, and the kingdom of God, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. But you who do those things, in verse 12, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Oh man, that's a a convicting verse. And, And so he begins by talking about the destiny of those that follow their own ways. And he's just straightforward. It's forsaking the Lord, abandoning Him. It's forgetting what He's done, forgetting His place of worship, forgetting His kingdom. But then the second half, and we have to understand this, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, this isn't just saying, oh, they're trying to you know, keep, take their own destiny in their own hands. These were both names for gods of the time. Fortune was, was Gad, a, a Canaanite god, that if you worshipped him would give you wealth. Destiny was from the Hebrew many. And it, it was the god of fate of the time. And so he's saying, you're, you're, 
you're bowing down to the God of money and of destiny and fortune and not trusting God for your future. I, I think today even, how many times do we compromise because we think it'll be better for our future? We'll be, we'll be more financially set. If I take matters into my own hands, I'll go the, my life will go the direction I want it to. Man, there's all kinds of things wrong with that statement. It's not your life. The direction you want it to isn't very wise. And we need God's wisdom. So he says, you set a table for fortune, a banquet. Invite them in, fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. And in verse 12, you want to hear about destiny? I will destiny you to the sword. And all of you will bow down to the slaughter. And before we jump in and say, oh God, you are so cruel and mean, he answers it right here. Because when I called, think of verse 1 and 2, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. What you did was evil in my eyes. You chose, you intentionally went down a path of ways that I do not delight in. We need to be trusting God and listening to Him and seeking Him instead of going our own direction. You chose what I do not delight in. See, repentance, when we talk about repentance, when we talk about coming to God, repentance is owning this verse. It's saying, God, I have chosen what you don't delight in. I have sinned against you. Repentance is an acknowledgement of the sin and the depth of our sin and a turning from that to say, I will follow you. It's always that both. And this verse just clearly lays it out. This is, this is what you need to admit if you're repentant. He goes on in 13 and 14 to give these comparisons. This is where you can sort of fill in that chart. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat. He's looking forward here. He's looking into eternity and in eternal destiny. Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. And that deals with physical needs and, and, and the world around us. But then he gets to the heart. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, and you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for the breaking of spirit. He just lays out the choice and the results of that choice. When we follow our own ways, we're still hungry. We're still thirsty because none of those things satisfy. There's pain down that path. Don't, don't use a Star Wars reference. We cry for pain of heart. We wail for breaking of spirit. But to those that follow God, gladness of heart. Now he's not saying life is peachy keen here. He's not saying health and wealth here. He's dealing with eternity. This is a mere flick on the timeline. Speck on the timeline. He goes on. Verse 15. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse. Basically, your end is going to be so devastating that people are going to use your name as a curse word. As, as an illustration of something that didn't work and led to disaster. 
And the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name that isn't a curse. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. That we can call on, those that walk with him can call on God and trust him in their land. He who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because they have that relationship with him and they're following him because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. Don't miss that last phrase of verse 16. The former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. And we get a picture of God's forgiveness. That when he wipes our sin away, it is clean and it is forgotten and it will not come back. He will not bring it back on us as far as for the east is from the west. And he's going to go on and elaborate on that. But two destinies, two choices that have eternal results. Now, we, we, we talked about the choose your own adventure with the bear. But this week, there was a real story of this, and just a sad story about a hiker and Whitney. And, and their group just made a number of choices that led to a destiny, led to an end that was not good. The first is hiking Whitney in, in May in the middle of record snow. That right there was a, a first choice that led to the disaster. Part way up, the second choice was one of the hikers didn't feel they could go on, so they came back alone. You're, you're, you're just like, oh no. <laughs> Some of you that have climbed Whitney, you just don't do this. And then as, as she came back down, because, whether it because of the snow or whether she made a choice, we don't know, but she got off the trail about 300 yards just above one of the lower camps, outpost camp, close to the bottom, and ended up going down a snowshoot and down a frozen waterfall. And they found her body. Choices led to that outcome. And, and I, I don't mean to, to, to scare us off from climbing Whitney. But just to illustrate that what we think of as innocuous choices sometimes, I'm going to go down, I'll be okay. It's the snow, we can do it. Our own devices have ends that we don't see. And, and all of Isaiah is God lovingly saying, I see the end. Don't go down that path because I love you. Seek after me. And yet we still call his commands burdensome and restrictive. And he's trying to save us and draw us close to the creator. The chapter ends with 17 through 25 by elaborating on what blessings are for those that follow God. And so some of the, sometimes in Isaiah, the chapters are pretty, pretty convicting and, and end on a somber note. This one ends in an incredible note saying, but the other choice, but the other choice, let me tell you about the other choice. And point number four, be encouraged by a closer glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth, the destiny of those that seek God. He will make all things new. And we can read these verses and it just, it just makes you smile. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Thinking back to verse 16, the prior verse. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice. This is God speaking. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And we just see a, a couple things even right there. God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth that we will spend all of eternity in. And, and sometimes we think of, I'm going to go to heaven with Jesus. 
Well, actually, he's creating a new heaven and a new earth, and our resurrected bodies are going to live on that new earth with Jesus and with God. And it's going to be incredible. He's making all things new. And so he's taking what he created the first time, if you remember the beginning of that timeline, and and we, not just Adam and Eve, we messed up with sin. And we have distorted and perverted God's creation. But he is going to take that and recreate it back into what he intended it to be. He's recreating Eden at the end. That's what we get to to enjoy. We saw the new heaven and new earth referenced in Isaiah 11. In Revelation 21 and 22, John takes his scroll of Isaiah and expands on this through the Holy Spirit. But it is going to be completely new. It is going to be awesome. It is going to be majestic. It is going to be amazing. It's going to be indescribable. And, And I don't even have enough words. Because take everything that amazes you about creation now. Get this. And realize that's all been tainted and corrupted. And it's going to be better. So I love the Sierras. I love Yosemite. I love the eastern Sierras, Mammoth area. We're going there again this summer. It's, to me, that's heaven. And then when I think of that's nothing compared to what the new earth is going to look like, like, that's cool. Yosemite now is going to be eh compared to what God recreates. Think of sitting on the edge of the shore, and some of you are more beach people, right? We have beach people and mountain people. And some of you can look off into the ocean and hear the waves and see that power, and it reminds you of the majestic greatness of God. Eh, nothing compared to the new heaven and new earth. I shouldn't say nothing because it's a glimpse. It's a glimpse shining through of what God created of beauty, And that glimpse helps us look forward to what's coming to those that seek God. God wants to give His children good and perfect gifts. Verse 18 and 19, something that we we forget sometimes. Oh, this is self-pleasing. No, God wants us to have things that, that we will love. He's intending for us to enjoy the new heaven and new earth to the full. Be glad, rejoice forever in what I create. I hope you like it. Ah, that's awesome. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, her people to be a gladness. If God wants to create something that you're going to enjoy, it's going to be incredible. That's what we're looking forward to. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And and catch the change there. In 18, it's I hope you enjoy it. In 19, it's like, it's God saying, I am going to love seeing you enjoy it. Like a parent, when he gives his kid, a a child, a great gift and they love it, doesn't that just make you feel incredible? Finally nailed that one. He didn't want a mower. And God is saying, I am going to rejoice and be glad in you. And then he goes on with these descriptions of, of the new bodies that he's going to give us, the new life. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. And weeping is the idea of felt pain and, and, and the, the pain that we feel inside. Crying of distress is more inflicted pain that's coming from the outside. He's saying it's all gone. I've taken care of it. Verse 20, No more shall there be an, in it, an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. And, 
This is a confusing passage. And some have said, well, okay, that can't be the new heavens and the new earth because there's death. But, but most scholars have said, well, actually, this isn't saying that there's going to be death. It's using a metaphor to say death is going to be defeated. The, the, the stranglehold of death and having a limited lifespan is going to be taken care of. There's going to be no pain. There's going to be no death. In fact, the power of death will be gone forever. The curse will be reversed. Verse 21 gives a picture of the new community. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And you're like, okay. But keep in mind, the children of Israel have gone through invasion after invasion after invasion and people taking their vineyards and taking their houses, being taken off into captivity. And God's saying, you don't have to worry about that anymore. No one's going to come. No enemy is going to come. Verse 22 They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And trees are so important in Israel. Even today, our our guide over there will say, look, we're planting trees. That means we're doing something for the next generation. Something that will last. Something beyond ourselves. It's a a sign of stability and permanence. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And so we see a community where, yes, there's still work, there's still accomplishment, but we are doing it without the the pain of sin. Therefore, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. And you see again a testimony of how close God wants to be with His people. Before you even know you need it, I'm going to answer. I'm going to give you everything you need. Even while while you start to to pray, I'm going to hear every word because I will be with you in all eternity. This is the destiny of those that seek God. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And you see perfect peace, perfect harmony, a new Eden. One, one little thing there. Did you notice in the middle of 25? And dust will be the serpent's food. This goes back to, to the fall. And this is a statement back to Genesis 3 that the serpent will still get his. There's something very satisfying about that. Satan will be put in his place will be judged. Are you, are you looking forward to heaven? New heaven and new earth? Do you see the choices and where they lead? I want to end by putting a quote from C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity on the screen. And it just sums it up. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. We weren't made for this tainted earth. We're made for the new heavens and the new earth. And for those that follow and seek God, that's the end. 
Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Just before we pray, if there is anyone here that has never made this choice, that have never chosen to see our self-centeredness and to see that I'm following my own ways and, and never chosen to follow God, and by follow God, we mean to repent of our sins and acknowledge that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for those sins. So I don't have to pay that penalty if I come to God because it's already taken care of. But I repent of my sins and choose to follow God and put my trust in Jesus. If you have never done that, now's the time to make choice too. Or the best choice. And I pray right now as we pray that you would pray, God, forgive me of my sins. Thank you for what you did on the cross. I give my life to you. If you do that, please come talk to me afterwards. Because today is the day to choose the destiny that ends up in in God's presence, in His glory, in His delight. Lord God, thank You for being so clear in Scripture that we don't have to wonder where things lead, that we don't have to wonder what the results of certain choices are. But along with being clear, thank you for your desire, your intent desire to call us to yourself. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that has never done that, today is the the best day of their life and the best decision of their life to follow you, to see what you have in store, to quit trusting ourselves and our fallible minds and trust the infinite creator of all things. Lord, for those that know you, I pray that this is reassuring, encouraging, and motivating to go tell others and to help others make that same choice. Thank you for your word, God. In Jesus' name.